So this morning again, I would like for us to take a look at the Psalms. And I know we've been jumping around the Psalms um, week by week, but this morning we're going to take a look at another Psalm. And as we jump forward from uh, Psalm 23 last week, we're jumping forward to Psalm 133. And I really like Psalm 133. Uh, It is short. It's three verses long. And I hope, as, as I have prayed, that it will be a blessing to us on this particular day when we get to meet together again face to face after nine weeks of being apart. Uh, so this is, I hope, will be a, a simple message of, of encouragement from, uh, uh, from, a, from a simple psalm and will be part of a, uh, answering the prayers uh, over these last weeks for for us and for the church in general. Um, what, how I've been praying in this time is that the Lord would use this time of separation, not just in us, but in, in the church and as a whole, to renew and to restore a deep love and a desire for the true church to be gathered together, to be together. And you know the saying, uh, you never know how much you'll miss something until it is, till it is gone. And I have to say, if, if you would allow me, I, I just have to commend you all over these last weeks of not only uh, enduring um, the technological frustrations and disasters that we've had a couple of those weeks, the individual technical difficulties that you've might have been, you've might experienced um, each week, uh, but still you participated, still you, you leaned in and you were apart. And even at times we could even see each other's faces. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad and happy that we are back together again this morning. But clearly, Zoom is not the same as this. Uh, and, and I don't mean just in the, in the, the practical sense or the lo- logistical sense, because I can tell you logistically, it's a lot easier for the Roberts family of eight to stay home than it is to pack us all up in a suburban and come anywhere. You name it, anywhere. It's a lot easier to stay home. But yet this, our fellowship, trumps it all. It's not meant to be the same because the church is those who have been called out that assemble together and gather together. So so I have prayed that the Lord would show us how important fellowship is, the fellowship of the saints is gathered together as the local church to each and every one of us and each and every one a part of the church. It's like, I I pray that this time of separation that we've had would be almost like a booster shot of commitment and and love and delight for for the church, for the called out gathered. And if there's one thing that the evangelical church in America needs, and notice how I said that's only one thing that they need. There's several things that they need. It, It definitely is more for its members and its shepherds to root out apathy and complacency from their own hearts and their own lives that comes from the distractions that the world puts before them. 
And I think that this time the Lord will use that to bring this kind of purification in the church so that they would be once again renewed in their devotion for one another. And, and even for us, we could, we could always use a boost. We could always use a boost in these things. And the reason is, is because we don't want to take for granted this. We don't want to take for granted being together. This is a precious gift. It's a blessing. It's a joy to being together. You know, it's quite unfortunate that so many Christians have such a small, narrow view and understanding of the church. And I get sometimes that they've just been taught it, but they believe church is only what happens up on stage. And that's an important part, but it is not the church. The church is the gathered group of people. It's the gathered group of believers who are committed to each other in love, in devotion, in commitment, in bearing with one another, in submission to one another, in serving one another, in weeping together, in rejoicing together, in correcting one another, in teaching and dis- disciplining and discipling. It's unity in the gospel, the very thing that Jesus prayed for his church to have in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Now let's look at Psalm 133 and see how this all ties together. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see his holy inspired an inerrant word for his glory and for our joy this morning. Amen. Again, I love this psalm. It's short, it's to the point, it's obvious, and it's clear. There's nothing like unity. There's nothing else like unity, is there? And if you've ever experienced the horror of disunity and the damage that it causes, then it's hard to know how sweet and beautiful unity really is. With disagreement and division all around us today, politics is like a dumpster fire that will never stop, where the media makes it look like everyone hates everyone else. If you believe one thing, you're a Nazi, and if you believe the other, you're un-American, or you're a communist, or you're a socialist, which, by the way, a lot of them are. That's my slight of my tribe. The tribalism is all around us. The effects of tribalism is destructive, literally destructive. It is so bad that some people are intentionally dividing us as a people, 
as a nation in every way that they can, from race, gender, religion, and anything else under the sun. And if you dare to speak out in any other way that the culture believes, you will be destroyed. You will be attacked personally. They will pressure your employers to fire you. Social media will put you in exile in digital ghettos. The cultural environment right now makes a lot of us look back and think about a sense of a time when there was unity. Or at least more civility toward one another. And patience and understanding. There's, there's a time that we could say and diagnose, and I'm sure we'll have some of that conversation this evening at Bill's house. But this morning, I want you to understand how beautiful unity it is. When families are in unity, it is glorious. It's wonderful. It's wonderful when neighbors are in unity. When friends are in unity. But unity doesn't mean the absence of disagreement, and maybe that's what has been forgotten. It's not the absence of, for, of disagreement or that we, we won't have different opinions on things. But what unity does mean is that we are united in what fundamentally matters. Our values, truth, and relationships. And those things create a bond that will not separate. As the church, our unity is in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And insert amen here. That is where our unity exists. The truth of scripture alone and in Christ. And in that fundamental truth and bond, the Lord has created in us relationship together. And so we have come and we've covenanted together to be united together in that truth. And then everything else after that truth is nothing but preference or conscience. And what we have seen together, together, is that when the church, its members, are united in the truth, united in the gospel, in Christ, in relationship, and then, then we love one another, and we bear with one another, and then there is unity in Christ Jesus. And that unity is beautiful. I don't think I have to say this, but I will. If you've ever been a part of a congregation where there was dissension, disunity, disagreement, and backbiting, and if you cared about the church, then it hurts. It's painful. It's stressful. It's destructive. And yet the opposite of that is beautiful. It's pleasant. It's life-giving. It's flourishing. Now, David wrote this psalm, and we're not exactly clear when David wrote this psalm, when he did, but clearly there was a time of the history of Israel when, that, when, when unity was such a glorious thing to him. And if you're somewhat familiar with David's life, uh, although 
He was an important of all the kings of Israel. He's the greatest king. David personally knew something about disunity as much as he knew about unity. He knew that unity, especially in Israel, was a rare commodity. And when it happened, when it revealed itself, it was something to be delighted in. It was something to be enjoyed. Brothers and sisters, unity in the church is something that should be delighted in. It should be something that we could rejoice in and we should enjoy together. Because unfortunately, as we all know, unity can be very rare. When you know the scripture and when you know the gospel and the grace of God, then unity is the natural byproduct of that gospel work in the church. But yet when any of those things are neglected, when the gospel is neglected, when truth is neglected of the word of God, then unity quickly falls away. David knew disunity. Remember, he had to flee Jerusalem for his life from his son who was going to kill him. But in Psalm 133, David is rejoicing in a great time of unity. And I hope this morning after this, we can as well rejoice and enjoy unity together and celebrate its sweetness and its beauty and joy. So I want you to see a few things this morning, the life-giving joy, the flourishing of the soul when there's unity. And there's three things I want to show you from Psalm 133 to finding joy and being together in unity. The first of those is Unity is a blessing. Unity is a blessing. Now, I know that that seems like a no-duh, but that's the point of this, this passage. It's a simple, sweet reminder that unity is a blessing. That unity is joy-giving. It's, it's, it's joy-infusing into the heart of those who enjoy it and delight in it. It's the blessing that we receive. It brings joy. And, and David writes in, in verse 1, he says, Behold, like, look, see it, pay attention, look here, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now here in verse 1, as he says, Behold and look at unity here, he gives two qualities about unity. Two very distinct qualities, good and pleasant. And they're very different things. Those are two very different things. Pleasant is helpful, but pleasant is more of a, of a, uh, a emotion or a feeling. Like standing in front of this fan is really pleasant. It's, it feels really good to have that fan blowing on me. That's a pleasant, it's a feeling, it's a comfort. It's something that's pleasing to the eye. When we see something beautiful, it's pleasing and beautiful. But also, not everything that's pleasant to us is also good for us. Y'all can pick a myriad things that we can put in that category. Things that we might enjoy that we know that's not really good for us. And why? Because good actually means more of a, a moral quality. Good is a moral quality. It's, a, it's of moral goodness, meaning Eating spinach may be good for me, but it's not pleasant to me. So y'all, y'all may have different circumstances, but it's maybe good for me, but it's not, it's not 
pleasant. But so, so look what he is saying here. He says, not only is it pleasant and morally good that brothers dwell in unity. It's morally good. It's right. It's sweet. It's beautiful. It's delightful. It's joyful. That's what he's saying here. It's for the brothers to enjoy. It's for the, the brethren to enjoy together. And that is why unity is a blessing and it brings joy. And that's not to leave you uh, ladies out because all who are born of God then says this, uh, the, uh, Ephesians 4 says, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is pleasant and good. Unity is, the unity experienced in the church is the highest of, of any unity that you ever can experience in this life. Because it's the oneness that God has created in us in the brotherhood. And uniting us in the body of Christ because we are one body and we have one spirit united in the gospel with one father united for all eternity. Can you think of any other unity that is that deep and that everlasting? So this is very important for us to remember often that unity in Christ as his church is a glorious blessing. It is something we are to delight in and to enjoy because it is good and it is pleasant. But a gift the Lord has given us all in the church for his glory and for our joy, the unity that we have experienced. Because we all know that unity can be taken apart and fractured by sin. Nothing has killed more churches and devastated more churches than sin. Especially the sin of gossip. James says the tongue is like a wildfire and it destroys all. But any sin amongst us can break unity. When bitterness sets in, when forgiveness is withheld, when preferences are put in the place of loving one another... Unity in the church as brothers and sisters is such a blessing. And we must not take it for granted because we, of all people, should know how rare it truly is. So, so this morning, can you resound with David this morning? Behold how good and pleasant it is for us to dwell, to live, to rest in unity together as the church of Jesus Christ. Do you experience that blessing of unity, that joy? Can you appreciate the blessing of what God has so miraculously done in our midst in pouring out his blessing of unity? And that brings me to the second point. Unity is poured out by the Lord. 
Our unity is poured out by the Lord. So moving from the the two qualities of good and pleasant, he now moves to to two, uh, two illustrations of how this blessing is poured out by the Lord on his people. Verse 2 is that first illustration. He says this, he says it is, and when he means it, he's talking about this kind of unity, this, this blessing of the unity, right? It's like precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. Now, now I don't know about you, but, but that's an illustration I don't really understand because I don't want oil poured on my head. And number two, I can't grow a beard, so I don't know how that feels. I just, that just seems really icky to me. But David is pointing to us something deeper than Ben's ickiness and what he thinks and what he feels. He's pointing us back to the Old Testament. This isn't, well, he's in the Old Testament, but he's pointing us further back to Exodus chapter 30. And in Exodus chapter 30, especially in verse 30, where Moses says to take that precious oil and anoint and to consecrate the high priest, which was Aaron at the time, and all of his sons before they sacrifice. And that's the picture that David wants us to see. He wants to see us see the picture of the, of the high priest being anointed before he receives the sacrifices and makes sacrifices for the people. He wants us to see that the oil is poured out on his head, this priest, and it runs. You see the visual as it oozes down his head on his face and, and through his beard and then on his collar and then on his garments. And, and this was a, to be a, a sign of the blessing and the, the consecration of the, the sacrifices and the one who would make the sacrifices on on their behalf. And this, again, points us forward to Jesus when Jesus was anointed to be that perfect offering of the sacrifice. But here's the thing. There's a, there's a real simple practical grace that took place with that anointing of that oil. That perfume, that oil that would be poured on them throughout the day as they are sacrificing, it would be hard for them to forget to be always reminded of God's blessing and joy that the Lord has on his people, even in the midst of such death of sacrifices all around them. And so it was poured on them to be as a, in a sense, a covering and a reminder of the blessings of God that he has poured out on his people. So when I was in middle school, and and you all know how middle school boys are, and if you don't, good for you. One thing about them is that they are very stinky. They are very stinky. Uh, and, and so after gym class every day, middle school boys, they wouldn't wash themselves, but rather they would change their shirts and then they would proceed to spray on as much Walgreens, cologne, and deodorant and other weird sprays that are marketed toward middle school hormone enraged young boys. And man, did the locker room stink. It was like this nasty concophony of BO and cheap spray. And the reason why is because these, in these, the mind of these middle school uh, uh, boys, um, they wanted to cover up that odor and the sweat from the gym to impress, who knows, 
to cover the smell with something they thought was better. I know kind of a weird illustration, but I think you get the picture here. That the oil that covered the priest was to cover up the dirty, smelly job of making sacrifices of animals. And that oil was used to anoint the head, which flowed down through his beard and his clothes onto the priestly garments. So that sweet oil, that perfume of that oil would cover up the smells of the dirty work sacrificed. And that was to be a pleasing aroma to them as they served in the sacrifices. You know, do you see what David is illustrating for us here? That unity being poured out is like that oil. In the messiness of life, in the messinesses of our life, in the messinesses of, of even our own relationships to, to, to one another and being in relationship to, to one another, the Lord has poured out the blessings and the sweetness of the anointing oil on us as a sweet reminder through our unity of God's grace and his blessings upon us. The second illustration is in verse 3. And this time he uses geography to prove a point. It is, again, that unity that's good and, and pleasant is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mounts of Zion. Now, again, that may not mean very much to us because we experience dew all the time. It could be in the middle of January, 20 degrees out, and it's still going to be dew on the ground because we see the frost. Right, but the but in but in Israel and even areas of our own country, they experience like literally no moisture whatsoever. And Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in in the area in the region, or in Israel, is known to have dew. And my guess was, is some of the way I was reading it, it, it kind of described almost like what you would see in the Smoky Mountains. You would see kind of that mist over this one mountain. And because of that, there was life on that mountain that, that seemed to, to flourish. And, and the people noticed that. They realized that. And they would, they would see that it was the, the blessings of God that is poured out on, on Mount Hermon. And what David is saying is that that unity that we are experienced that's good and is pleasant, it is almost as if God has taken the dew of Mount Hermon and he has poured it out onto the, the mountain of Zion, which is Jerusalem. He has poured out onto Jerusalem. And just like the plants and the trees that flourished around Mount Hermon, life flourished in the city when there was unity. That is what David is illustrating here. That the blessings of the unity that they are experienced, brothers and sisters, the blessings that we experience in the unity is unity that God has poured out on us. This is very important for us to recognize, especially in our own context. That the blessing, the good, the pleasantness, the fellowship, the love for one another that we have for one of the, the unity, the desire to want to gather and, and earnestly want to be together week after week after week. And now we are, we are gathered. That is God's blessing poured out onto us. Amen. He has done that. 
He has given that. He has blessed us with unity. You know, I, I think we've been taught very well to be thankful for the physical blessings that we have in our lives. And by all means, thank the Lord for those blessings. But what about this spiritual blessing of the unity that we have in the church that God has poured out on us? This is the blessing that He has poured out on us. So the first is unity is a blessing. Second, unity is poured out by God. And number three, lastly, unity is to be pursued. Unity is to be pursued. Here's the rest of verse three. I love it. He says, for there, right, Jerusalem, on his people, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So, so we've just said that, that unity is a blessing and, and that blessing is poured out by God. And it's like oil that just drips all over us and comes down like an anointing for us to, to think about the sweetness of that unity despite the messiness of our relationships of times and, and even our own sin that we still can think about the blessings of God as it's been poured out on us and it covers us and it gives us life like the rich, uh, like the plants that, that flourished on Mount Hermon. The dew of the Lord has been poured out on us. And here David is telling us that it is the Lord who has commanded this blessing of unity. I quoted earlier from Ephesians 4, but also another another place in Ephesians, we see that it is God who pours out the unity because God is the creator of that unity for us. We are not the creators of gospel unity, but the Lord is that. We do not create unity. God creates unity. Let me, let me read from, from Ephesians 4, if you want to, or Ephesians 2, excuse me. You can turn there if you want. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. And start in verse 11, he says, Therefore, and this is back to um, the amazing riches of his blessings of grace in, in chapter 1, predestination, election of God that he is, that he is bestowed and, and he has done for the foundation of the world that, that we would delight and that we would enjoy in him. And then number two, the second thing, then how he has saved us in chapter 2, by grace you have been saved not of works that no man, no man shall boast. And now in verse 11, he says this, Therefore, remember, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh of hands. So by the flesh, this is what we were. We were Gentiles in the flesh. We were uncircumcised, made by hand. This is who we were, and this is where it continues. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So we have to keep in context all the time this idea that before Christ drew us into his, into his family, into his church, and saved us by his grace, remember that at one time you were separated. You weren't a part of this unity alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, almost like the but God in verse 3, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's all of us, you who were once far off as what? 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has ma- who has made us both one. He has made us one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing walls of hostility. Brothers and sisters, there's our unity. Think about all the ways the world wants to divide you and all the ways that the evil one wants to creep in us in here and use our sins and use our preferences, even the very good things, and create the disunity in what Christ has brought near and brought together. He wants us to be separated again. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing walls of hostility. Why? Especially because he is abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And so making peace. Now he's speaking of the, the Jew and the Gentile and the bringing together in one. So two groups of people that have more things in, 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 in uh, that, that um, more things in uh, opposition to one another, that don't like each other, he has brought together and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. The cross has brought us together through one through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Through him, we have both access and one spirit to the Father. So then, listen to this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. That's unity. That's the unity that God has created in the church. In verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that's the scripture. It's built upon the scripture, which Christ himself being our cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, listen to this, brothers and sisters, this is glorious, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He has brought us. He has created us. He has joined together, joined us together into one foundation. He has broken down the walls of hostility. He has brought us near to the Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes us who we are. And it's what unites us to him in union and communion with him together. We do not create this unity. We cannot create gospel unity. God creates it. And he is the one who pours it out on his church. But Ephesians 4 says this. It says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's verse 1. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God created the body. God created unity for us, in, for us to be in with Christ And then what does he do? He pours it out on us. And we experience the 
the, the pleasantness and the goodness of that, of that blessing. But yet, however, it is our job to maintain that unity of the Spirit. It is our job to maintain it and to always pursue it, not neglecting it. Brothers and sisters, in all that we do, in every uh, offense to one another, in, in every sin against one another, in every difference of opinion that we may have in either in, in, in matters of con- uh, conscience or in patience, it is still our jobs and all that we say and all that we do and how we react to one another is to pursue unity and love in the Spirit of God and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel of grace. And that manner looks like humility. It looks like gentleness. It looks like a lot, a lot of patience. It looks a lot of bearing one another in love. And all that means is this. What we do as the body of Christ as individuals is not primarily for you. Think about that. What we do as individuals, a part of the body of Christ, the Bible constantly is telling us that primarily it's not about you. But it's about serving others and and loving one another. It's for each other. We forgive others. We bear with them. We serve. We give. We give. And we give. And we give. And we give. And we go. We can hurt our unity by our actions, by our words, by our sin, by our neglect, if we fail to maintain it. And if we fail to maintain unity in the spirit of the Lord, I think we all know what that means. But the Lord, he calls it a blessing. David calls it a blessing. He says it's commanded by the Lord. And then he says, he ends this psalm by saying, life forevermore. When we maintain the unity that the Lord has poured out on us, and when we forgive one another, we love one another, we're teaching one another, we're encouraging one another. You know, we like to point to um, Matthew, Matthew 18 when we're talking about church discipline. And probably one of the most high, one of the most verses that are, um, that, that is uh, misquoted is that they say when one or two are gathered in, or when two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be also. And, and they think it's, you know, where two people get together, then Jesus will be with us. It's as if, if we're walking down by ourselves that Jesus is not with us. And that's just not true. But what they're saying there is that in those experiences of church discipline, when you gather the one and two together, when you gather the church together, there I will be also. When we're maintaining that peace and that unity amongst us in that very most difficult of time, maybe even in church discipline, remember the blessing of, and promise that Jesus said that I will be with you, that he is with us. And when we know that we're maintaining this and we're doing this and we're pursuing this because we know God has poured it out on us and we know the experience of that blessing, we know that there is life forevermore. What we experience here in our church is unlike anywhere else in the world. The world cannot produce this unity. 
but in Christ, he has. And in it, we experience life, flourishing, a melodic rhythm that is good and pleasant, where all who gather receive a joy only experienced by those who gather a part of the church. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here when I say the Lord has truly poured out his blessings of unity upon us and especially on us in this day and especially on his little flock called Sovereign Grace Church of Statesboro, Georgia. He has not forgotten us and he has poured out his blessings of unity. I I close with this, John 17. Y'all know I had to go here. John 17, Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer, verse 20. He says, I do not ask these things for these things only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. What a prayer that Jesus has prayed for us. Do you believe that God has answered that prayer? I do. We're still growing in it. We're still learning what that means. We're still bearing with one another. But as God is answering that prayer and has answered that prayer in us, look what it is saying that we are showing the world. We are showing the world the Trinitarian loving relationship of God to the world. When we are fighting and we are backbiting, when we are in disunity and in disagreement that cannot reconcile, we are showing the world God as we are perceiving him to be. But the Lord has made us one in Christ. And the basis of our unity is in him in the relationship with his Father. He has made us one because he is one. And in that, he shows the world. We are a testimony to the world of the love that God has for his son and for us. Jesus has come, the true mediator of God's people, and he intercedes for us before the Father. David saw the beauty of unity at the temple. How much more is the glory of our union shown as we in Christ display our devotion and love to him and to each other in the church.
How much more? The sweet beauty and the aroma of our unity displays to the world the blessings that God has poured out on his people by sending his son to die for us and to be our propitiation so that we may be one in him and may be one together in his body or as his body. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the unity that you have poured out on us. It is truly a blessing. It's truly a blessing. We give you the glory. We give you the praise for such things. What a, what, what a great joy it is, Lord, to shepherd this church, to be a shepherd in this church. The unity that we experience, Lord, is given by you, and we are so thankful for it. God, we are grateful that we've been, we're able to be together today to see one another and to be re- restored and renewed in a sense of that unity and that bond that we have together as your church and as your people. Lord, thank you for our time that we've had in your word and may you use it to the glory of your name. And in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.